0: This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. I'll be honest, I haven't stopped thinking about the death of a young child in Hartford, killed by bullets two weeks ago in a drive-by shooting. His name was Randell Jones. His aunt, Johanna Vasquez, shared memories of him at a vigil shortly after his death. He liked to play with the Legos. They used to like slushy.
2: He was a happy baby. It is so hard what happened.
0: Randell wasn't the only child to die April 10th. Just hours later, about a mile away, a 16-year-old New Britain boy was shot dead too. Jamari Preston's funeral is this afternoon. Today, where we live, we wanted to talk about what happens after gun violence. Who is supporting families affected by this trauma? Policymakers talk about disinvestment in programs that help communities disproportionately affected by gun violence. Coming up, we'll talk to State Representative Brandon McGee, First, there are people and community groups that focus on families and young people impacted by violence. Hartford Communities That Care is one of those groups. Joining me now on Zoom is Brother Calvin Lovejoy. He's an intervention specialist with Hartford Communities That Care. Brother Calvin, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much. Can you hear me?
0: I can hear you. And I want to let our listeners know that they can join our conversation to 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Brother Kelvin, I mentioned you're an intervention specialist with this organization. So what does that mean, especially in relation to what we're talking about today when community members are grieving the death of a child?
1: The the title of intervention specialist is um, very direct meaning that you know we find ourselves working directly um, with family members and community residents who are impacted uh, by the violence that happens in our community. We find ourselves at the intersection of working with the hospital Um, when a violent act occurs, and working as a liaison between the hospital, the police department, and the loved ones or the family members themselves. And um, during a a tragic time like the one we experienced uh, just the other week, you know, information is extremely important uh, to the family, And so, um, because of our partnership that we have with the hospital, we're able to go into the hospital and engage with uh, hospital staff getting the vital information that is needed. um, From the hospital and and then getting that uh, To the family members.
0: We're going to talk more about that partnership that you just described, Brother Calvin. Uh, but I wanted to read a a quote that you gave the the Hartford Kern after, again, the shooting death of this toddler, Randell. You said, if a white police officer had shot a young black male, there would be marches and mobilization. And you asked, what will we do when we've lost a three-year-old in our community? Again, that was two weeks ago that he died. Describe what you're seeing now in the greater Hartford community when we think about this tragedy.
1: Yeah, definitely. Uh, I remember that quote and I remember the feeling or the emotion that generated those words and they are still alive today in the sense that you know we have taken violence in our community uh, as a norm and we don't see enough uh, not only reaction but action when these types of tragedies happen. Uh, The front line Folks like myself and agencies like Hartford Communities that Care are working overtime, uh, not only to try to prevent these types of acts from happening, but um, when they do happen, you know, it is a nonstop process uh, to engage our community um, to make sure that there's healing going on in our community. And so, what we see in the city unfortunately is this overarching atmosphere of trauma and that trauma has become pervasive and what it produces is a sense of apathy and for the most part residents believe that there's nothing that can be done you know when you lose a three-year-old everyone screams something should be done but in the aftermath the question becomes what should be done
0: when you talk about residents, I wanted to break that down further, Brother Kelvin, because obviously there are adults in our communities, but there's also children, uh, young people who see this happening and how that impacts them when we talk about trauma.
1: Definitely. You know, there's an old, um, there's an old uh, saying about canaries in the mind and it, it stems from you know, the industrial age of of America, when the miners um, who were concerned about toxins being in the mine, and they would send in the innocent canaries, if you will. And if there were uh, hazardous uh, conditions in the mine, then the canary would die. And they knew that that environment was dangerous for human life. Well, today, what we see, unfortunately, in the city of Hartford is that our children are like the canaries in the mine, and we know that something is wrong. We know that something is not right in our community, and the indication is that we're losing our children to violence.
0: What are you hearing from young people that you talk to, Calvin? the young people that are also involved in the work at Hartford Communities That Care?
1: There's a lot, you know, we're in a very um, strange uh, predicament, a very strange time and environment. Our young people, uh, many of them who are not engaged in school and so they don't get to see their friends like they used to, the educational paradigm has, has shifted and you know they're in the Zoom world now and what it has produced is that a lot of our children are not going to school Uh, what was normal for them is, is no longer normal in terms of trying to walk the path of success. But what has become normalized is this issue of trauma and violence. And so what we're hearing from young people really spans the range of, yes, we need to do something to there's nothing that we can do at all. That's what we're hearing.
0: You're hearing on Where We Live, Brother Kelvin Lovejoy. He's an intervention specialist at Hartford Communities That Care. You can join our conversation as we talk about how families and others can be supported after gun violence happens. Uh, We're pegging this to this unfortunate story. Just a couple weeks ago, a three-year-old child killed in a drive-by, and then just a few hours later, just about a mile away, another child, a 16-year-old, shot dead. And it's something that I just can't get out of my mind as, as a mother, yeah. uh, Brother Kelvin. And yes. that's why I wanted to talk about this today, because as you mentioned, when these incidents happen, people are upset and we talk about it. And then the communities that are most impacted are left to pick up the pieces in this grieving process. And so I wanted to learn more about the partnerships that you have and uh, the resources that you still need to do this work.
1: Definitely, you know, we're very fortunate, uh, if you will, to have an organization um, like Hartford Communities That Care, um, to have organizations that partner with Hartford Communities That Care, like Blue Hills Civic Association and Mothers United Against Violence, um, the YMCA, and and, and even uh, organizations like Compass Peace Builders, who are out there on the front line. Um, working to find ways really to to prevent violence and you know we have trained preve- professionals who are intervention specialists and the way that we see um you know the issue of violence is as a uh, health condition and we we are trying to address this as a health condition and you know we look at it the same way you would look at any disease you know it 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 not only makes the individual sick, if you will, but it it makes the environment sick. It causes you to have to go to the hospital. It it can be a cause of death. It impacts uh, us physically as well as mentally, but it is treatable and preventable. But one of the big things uh, that we have to also remember is that it's contagious. And if we don't do something about it here and now, You know, the potential for it to spread across our community is extremely real.
0: Talk more about this point you brought up about contagion, because uh, in the hours after uh, someone uh, is killed, and you and your teams are activated in the sense of going to the hospital trying to, you know, help facilitate conversations between family and close friends with the medical providers that are trying to save their life or responding and the amount of people who also want to respond and how you need to help balance that and make sure that, you know, more of this violence doesn't happen in the hours and days after.
1: You know, it's it's a very um, unique position that we find ourselves in. You know, when the call comes in and um, our team is mobilized and we go uh, to the hospital um, and we find that the hospital was usually on lockdown most times um, and this was even before uh, COVID-19 but uh, now it's locked down uh, as well as the issue of COVID-19. And so you have family members who are concerned who are worried who are distraught outside of the hospital and when the interveners arrive you know we we fan out if you will to find out you know who's the next of kin who's the mother the father um and at the same time you know other interveners go into the hospital and they connect with the charge nurse and 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 the health professionals and we're trying to find out who this person is and and what their condition is and the process begins there, whereby we gather that information from the hospital and then we connect with the family. Um, But we're also listening. We're listening uh, to see uh, what kind of information uh, may be circulating in, in terms of not only how things happen or why things happen, but You know the the thought of retaliation um is also out there and so you know it is it is our job to engage with with family members and loved ones and residents to make sure that there is uh not a spreading of of the violent situation that that may uh may have impacted whatever their loved ones are or whoever their loved ones are
0: so you and your team on call 24 7 and as the the news coverage of around an event subsides that grief is still there uh, months even years later and so can you talk about the follow-up that you're doing
1: sure you know um you spoke about the the uh us being on call 24 7 you know i i would have to say that uh mr andrew woods who is you know the executive director at hartford communities that care You know, if if there were 25 uh, uh, hours and eight days in a week, he'd be working all of those hours and we would be right there behind him. And the truth of the matter is it feels that way sometimes. Um, You know, our goal is to build that rapport and turn that rapport into a relationship. We understand that family members are dealing with extreme trauma Uh, when someone is injured and that trauma is increased when their loved one, you know, is deceased because of this violence. And so connecting at the hospital is extremely important. And, you know, the the training that we have received um, coming through the uh, Health Alliance for Violence Intervention or the HAVI training, which is a nationally recognized and certified training that we've received allows us to use the competencies that we have learned to not only connect with the family, but begin the healing process and help them to put their lives back together, help them to move forward towards that process of healing.
0: Coming up, we're gonna talk more about that healing process with brother Kelvin Lovejoy, intervention specialist at the nonprofit Hartford Communities That Care. Uh, Brother Calvin, before we had to break, you know, I have to ask, this is important work. You've been doing it for a long time. Personally, how does this work affect you?
1: You know, not only um, is this my quote-unquote job or my profession, but it is a mission for those of us who are on the front lines. I can't say that... Um, you know it doesn't affect us in, in in negative ways it does because we're human beings but every one of those individuals who are injured in the streets of Hartford you know Hartford only being 18 square miles well, we find that that there's a connection somewhere whether it's with the grandmother or the auntie the the the, the uncle or the brother somehow we find ourselves being connected to these individuals. And so I would say that indirectly, it's, it's like having a family member that's, that's injured. It's like having a, a family member that is lost. And so it, it impacts us in such a way um, to say that we have to do something to stop this. We don't want to see another family member injured.
0: We'll continue talking after the break. You can join us too eight 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 seven two zero nine six seven seven. That's eight 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 seven two zero WMPR. Or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Malpothanchel. Today we're talking about what happens after gun violence. How can communities help victims and their families? You can join us to 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. My guest today is Brother Kelvin Lovejoy. He's an intervention specialist with Hartford Communities That Care. Uh, Brother Kelvin, you know, when these incidents happen, again, we hear from people, we hear from policymakers, and I'm curious, when you look at the work that your organization has been doing, where are the gaps? What are the resources that you still need to help families, help communities before this kind of thing happens?
1: That's a very good question, um, and and I think I would start to answer it this way. And you know, when we look at, <clears throat> pardon me, when we look at the um, condition. Um, of our community and look at the condition that the families live in, when a violent act occurs, when there is trauma um, of a violent sort that enters into the lives of these families, we're not just dealing with the current act of violence. When we engage the families, we find that we many a times are dealing with trauma from years past we're dealing with living conditions whether it be housing or unemployment or whatever you have uh, at the front door all of that is compounded on top of whatever the violent situation is and so when we talk about the gaps you know we need resources that will help us not only address the current situation but resources that will help us deal with the long-term systemic types of trauma that we find when we go behind the front door. So counseling, um, food insecurities, housing insecurities, job insecurities, you name it, all of that is compounded. And we find this out when we go into the home. Hmm.
0: So this idea that when we think about young people dying in gun violence, but also uh, youth with guns, they're not the problem. They're a symptom of all of these other factors you mentioned.
1: Definitely. um, Again, from a systemic point, you know, we look at the symptoms of the health problem. And many a times we, we try to treat the symptom, but that doesn't get to the root cause and so while an aspirin is appreciated you know many a times what's needed is surgery and <clears throat> we have to go in and 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 deal with some some deep uh, deeply rooted causes of what the problems are the real problems are
0: when we talk about gun violence especially gun violence that's happening in our cities do you get tired of the the feeling that this is a Hartford problem and Hartford policymakers need to figure this out when we think about our state as a whole and the fact that we have communities brother Kelvin where substandard housing is not uh you know not there and where substandard education is not there and we think about all these factors that impact uh, children and the outcomes in their lives (sighs)
1: <sighs> See, now I have to put on my organizer's hat. <laughs> so I go from, from intervener to organizer. And the answer is yes. We we, we understand that um, there there is a broader systemic problem afoot here. And, you know, when we look at it, we have to look at it from the grass top to the grassroots in order to truly understand it. Hartford, again, being 18 square miles and, you know, is on the map um for many of the um inequities highest uh seen inequities across the country. Uh poverty is a major issue. Uh the the educational system and its in its its inequalities. Um again housing is a is another big one. And so you know the environment that we live in, if you take a drive, you know, just 15 minutes outside of Hartford, you find a different environment. And what we're saying is that these issues could be addressed because what happens in Hartford really affects the entire state.
0: I'm gonna put you on the spot, Brother Kelvin, and ask you what you wanna hear from our governor.
1: You know, there is a, um, there is a, voice that is building right now um and, and i'm sure you've heard it um over the last year about uh racism being a uh one of the first pandemics that we have had to wrestle with <clears throat> part of me and i know that there is a campaign uh, right now to uh, have the governor address uh racism as a as a health problem and um you know, I would just say, you know, the recognition that what's going on in the city of Hartford is a microcosm of what's going on in many communities like Hartford, your New Havens, your Waterbury's, your Bridgeport's, and that what we need <clears throat> is the type of resources that can help us to turn the tide, to turn the corner on this issue of violence. Because if we can improve the inequities within the cities, then all the boats can rise. So, you know, what I would like to hear from the governor is that definitely this is a priority for us in the state of Connecticut. And, you know, we're going to uh, sit with those folks who are on the front lines. And what we're going to do is prioritize this and get the resources down to them immediately.
0: Again, you're hearing Brother Kelvin Lovejoy, an intervention specialist with the nonprofit Hartford Communities that Care, as we talk about the work being done to help victims and families um, of gun violence. And uh, Brother Kelvin, uh, we did reach uh, Andrew Woods, the executive director of Hartford Community That Cares. uh, Earlier, he wasn't able to join today. Uh, But he told my producer that last year, 220 people were shot in Hartford. That Mm -hmm. was a 50% increase from the previous year. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we're all looking forward to getting out of this pandemic. And summer is coming. And so uh, when we Think about uh, ways that communities can help. The ways that policymakers can help. Uh, what short-term things do you want to see?
1: You know, it's it's really a call for all hands on deck right now. Um, from again policymakers to um, corporate uh, uh, America, or right here in the state of Connecticut. You know, coming on down to. Uh, local politicians and 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 city council members, to you know the, the the corner store that's in our neighborhood, moving right into the homes of these young people themselves. What we need to see is that we can develop a concerted effort to make the safety of our children a priority, to do all that needs to be done in terms of. Uh, changing the conditions of our community we have to see this as a systemic problem and then work together to break down those systemic issues that's a good start
0: i wanted to ask you before we had to break brother kelvin uh, when we think about again about families impacted by violence uh again i keep thinking about the mother of randell jones and um, as we uh, move forward um, some of the work that you'll still be doing to help that particular family?
1: You know, under um, the, the work that we do um, in terms of assisting uh, victims and their families, you know, it, it includes crisis intervention. It includes uh, counseling. Uh, it may in- include uh, emergency uh, housing or, or, or sheltering um criminal justice advocacy um transportation to and from uh appointments so you know we are out there to help we are out there to stand in the gap if you will when a family finds themselves in this type of crisis Um, many of the things that we uh, have in our brochure if you will of of services and, and programs we go over and beyond that because we understand that trauma does not stay in its own box. And so whatever the trauma expands out to, many a times we find ourselves as well.
0: And there's a number that um, for people who want to reach out to your organization, uh, can you share it with us for Hartford Communities That Care?
1: Sure. And I... You see, you caught me off guard. There, yeah, I was about to give my own number. My goodness! Oh.
0: oh, you know what? I have it right here. Let me just say it for our <laughs> listeners: eight six zero seven two four. One, two, two, three to reach yes, Hartford indeed. communities that care. We're also going to tweet out a link to your website, Hartford Communities That Care. Uh, we want you to stick around, Brother Calvin, if you if you can, uh, as we bring in uh, one of the policymakers that represents parts of Hartford. That's Representative Brandon McGee. That's coming up right after the break. But I, I did want to mention that you're doing a lot of work with young people, not just um, responding to when uh, violence happens, but helping them engage uh, in the issues in their community and helping them uh, expand their voices. And there's a a youth virtual summit happening this this Saturday.
1: As a matter of fact, it's our third annual uh, youth summit. You know, we are very fortunate to uh, have young people who have learned how to use their voice to advocate for themselves and their peers. And so uh, Raising Youth Voices will actually be sponsoring uh, this, this third annual uh, youth summit this coming Saturday.
0: Wonderful. Again, we'll we'll tweet out a link uh, at where we live. That's Brother Kelvin Lovejoy, an intervention specialist with Hartford Communities That Care. Hopefully you can stay with us uh, before uh, we end the show. Uh, Before we uh, get to the end of the hour, I just wanted to remind our listeners, you're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. This conversation about gun violence comes in a week where a former police officer, Derek Chauvin, was convicted of murdering George Floyd. And in a week when other black residents have been shot by police in our country, including a 16-year-old black girl in Ohio. Coming up, we'll talk to State Representative Brandon McGee as well about this moment that we're in. But first, it's the last day of our spring membership campaign. Where We Live brings you conversations with people in our state about stories that are happening in our communities. We want you to know that we rely on your support. And here are two of my colleagues to tell you more. 1-800-584-2788.
3: That's the number to call. But if you don't feel like calling, you don't want to talk to anyone, you could go to wmpr.org slash donate. Um, to uh, make your pledge of support today. Uh, I'm Kat Pastor. I'm here with Tim Rasmussen from Connecticut Public Radio. And uh, today we are here to ask you for your support to keep uh, Connecticut Public and shows like Where We Live going. You're listening to Where We Live. You love Where We Live. Uh, You love all the work that Lucy Nalpithanchel and uh, the team of Carmen and Tess has put into the show. And uh, what other show gives you the opportunity to uh, call in and yell at Ned Lamont or compliment him? I mean, you know, whichever way, whichever way you go, they give you that opportunity. Um, And I can attest uh, working on the show. I'm the board operator for the show. I can attest um, just to how much work goes into this show, even the rebranding that we had this year. Um, So much work, so much research goes into the show, um, so much care and so much time. And the only way that we can really keep that going is uh, with listener support, because we are a listener funded station. Uh, We rely on uh, listeners as opposed to advertisers to fund us. And that also means that we are – everything that we do is in service to our listeners. So um, if you want to make that pledge of support today to keep where we live and all of the other shows on Connecticut Public going, because there's a lot of them. I mean, this year alone – I've been here for a year and two months. And this year and two months alone, there's already three new shows. There's uh, new stuff going on on Connecticut Public Television. Uh, you're being brought content in, in new ways, new podcasts, new web posts. Um, it's ever expanding. I can promise you as a listener that when you donate to Connecticut Public, your money goes so far and is spent so wisely uh, that that it's just – it makes it worth it. Think of it as kind of like a streaming service. You're paying for more. When you, when you uh, donate to Connecticut Public, we can do more. And you get to benefit from that by consuming it. So in order to get more, um, make a pledge of support today. You can call 1-800-584-2788 or you can go to wmpr.org slash donate. What's up, Tim?
2: And that's exactly right. Cat. I mean, if you think about all the stuff that we've done in the middle of this incredible pandemic, the content team that I lead is truly amazing. Not only did we roll up three new talk shows on radio, Audacious was the first one, Seasoned was the second one, and then Disrupted. And they're one, they're led by wonderful hosts, Kayon Wolf and uh, Mariel Castro and Chef Plum and the great uh, Kalila Brown Dean. And those shows are invocative of the conversations that are going on in our communities right now. Our radio team is also working Um, hand in hand with our television team and so we started a series called Cutline and Diane Orson was our first Cutline host back in November doing mental health in the time of COVID and upcoming Ray Hartman his his April show is on preserving uh, small businesses in a pandemic and then our Lucy from this great where we live show that we all love and tells us a lot more about our communities and brings an enrichment to our lives is going to be hosting a show about the housing divide in Connecticut and how inequity in housing has been a long-standing problem in Connecticut. And we're going to look at how those things uh, affect people. Where we live is really about people in Connecticut and how we interact as citizens, as neighbors. And even when we disagree, we can have a conversation. And Lucy brings together lots of different groups. And we look at issues that are old the issues that are new and issues that are on the moment. So when you think about the Wednesday's politics focus that the show has undertaken and having people like Ned Lamont on, when you think about the politics focus on Wednesdays, um, you think about when Ned Lamont's on and the ability to call the governor directly and ask a question. That is truly American democracy at its best.
3: That is true. And also, uh, if you listen to the Ned Lamont shows, you know that Lucy will not let him get away with anything. She just does not. Um, now, so, Lucy
2: has no problem tackling the big issues in our state. Oh,
3: no. And,
2: and how it affects us. And um, she does it. She does it very nicely. Yes. She does it.
3: Oh, yes. But she will bring it up. She will bring it up. Um, and that's so true about where we live. I've lived in Connecticut my entire life, and I had I really didn't know much about it until I started working on where we live. Now I feel like I know I'm so knowledgeable about it. And I think that it's really important because a lot of the issues that were happening, a lot of people don't even realize. Um, I didn't even realize uh, how widespread some of the issues that I've even experienced are. Um, so it's kind of like a great equalizer as well. So if you'd like to support that, again, go to 1-800, well, you can call 1-800-584-2788. Or you can go to wmpr.org slash donate. And when you go to the website, you can check out all of the great thank you gifts we have for you. You can become a one-time donor or a monthly sustaining donor. It's kind of like a set it and forget it thing. Um, So, again, that's 1-800-584-2788 or WNPR.org. And we thank you so much for your support.
0: This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. We've been talking about gun violence uh, in Hartford Uh, that killed two children of color this month. This week, a young black girl was killed by police in Columbus, Ohio. Her death came on the same day the nation saw former police officer Derek Chauvin convicted of murdering George Floyd, a black man. Joining us now to talk about this moment that we're in on Zoom, State Representative Brandon McGee. He represents parts of Windsor and Hartford. Representative McGee, welcome back to the show.
4: Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And it was uh, a pleasure to hear here and listen rather to Brother Lovejoy, uh, speak truth to power, and I I really enjoy the incredible work he's doing there.
0: Uh, Before we talk about uh, the Derek Chauvin conviction, I know that you and your colleagues uh, were just as uh, devastated when uh, news came when that three-year-old was killed in a drive-by shooting. And, And I wanted to ask you your response and the path you see forward where the Connecticut General Assembly can help communities that are struggling with gun violence.
4: Yeah, you know, uh, I've said it and I'll say it again. Uh, these are very difficult uh, questions to respond to when folks ask Black people, how do you feel? What are your thoughts? Um, it's, it's sort of like we need to hit the repeat button uh, with respect to what it is that we're already doing. Uh, and I think we need to continue doing the work um, to intervene and to support many of our families. But I want to take a step back. Um, and by the way, I'm hurt. Uh, This is traumatic. Um, This has been going on for a very long time. Not to to forget on the national level, black and brown children are being shot almost daily. Um, So there's levels of frustration, anxiety, um, you name it. But the path forward is to continue doing uh, what many of these organizations have been doing to work alongside our families, Uh, and to provide the support needed uh, to really put a stop uh, to gun violence in our communities. But it's bigger than just putting a stop. We have to address poverty, systemic racism, institutionalized racism. And I am so very honored that this state, um, unfortunately, we're responding to what took place last year during all of the, uh, the, the protests, the unrest, um, as a result of George Floyd's killing. And while that was an unfortunate situation, it served as a catalyst uh, uh, to really push this conversation uh, around racial equity and justice for Black, Brown, and Indigenous people here in the state of Connecticut. And I am um, very honored that this state is, is taking seriously uh, that talk um, and really moving the needle forward. But it's going to—it's bigger than just a laser focus on gun viol- violence. We have to work with communities that have been under-resourced, overlooked for many years.
0: Earlier, Brother Kelvin talked about uh, the impacts of generational. Uh, generational poverty and the impact, the trauma of living in places where you don't feel safe, substandard housing. And I know that you are chair of the housing committee. So when we talk about racial equity, that all comes together in ways that the state can move forward in proposals to help people live in places where they feel safe and are dignified where They don't have to worry about uh, rodents and mold and violence on their streets.
4: Yeah, um, you you bring up a very interesting point. And, um, you know, I make no um, apologies uh, with what I'm about to about to say. And I think I've said it on this show once before Um, in order for the human beings Okay, Uh, because oftentimes we talk about these challenges, communities like a Hartford or New Haven are faced with as if people aren't human. Uh, And for me, I will continue uh, the fight and the Clarion call to the state um, to invest more in communities, once again, uh, that have to deal with blighted uh, properties, uh, deplorable conditions, uh, and so as chair of the legislature's housing committee, alongside my colleagues, uh, I've been laser focused uh, on addressing uh, some of the conditions that many of the people um, are forced to live in and they should not have to live in those types of conditions. So there are certain policies and I'm, I'm very happy that Hartford um, City Council just adopted uh, one of the laws that was passed about two years ago, essentially to hold uh, slum lords accountable. Uh, and there was a loophole um, in the system where many of these slum lords from states like New York come in and they buy our properties and and, and they just kind of sit on them. Uh, and they make no repairs. They provide no safe living for the tenants um, because they can. And one of the things that we did to close that loophole was to hold the entity that is financially benefiting from the rent that's being paid uh, by the tenants. Um, in years past, they would just create new LLCs and keep it moving. And so all the fines that the city had been placing on these landlords, they could avoid them. Uh, so I'm happy that we're moving the needle a little bit forward uh, with respect uh, to, to shutting down uh, these, these very um, nasty, if you would, uh, landlords who come in and take advantage of of the people in cities like Hartford, and this is happening throughout the state, but that bill that was passed two years ago uh, is in full effect in the city of Hartford, and I'm very honored um, that they've they've been able to pick that ordinance up and, and do something about it.
0: You're hearing State Representative Brandon McGee here on Where We Live. Uh, as we, uh, this hour, we were talking about gun violence and the fact that we're having this conversation uh, in a week where the nation saw uh, a former police officer convicted of murdering uh, George Floyd, but also on the same day, a 16-year-old girl in Ohio, Micaiah Bryant, being shot and killed by police there. Uh, Representative McGee, uh, you talked about uh, children of color uh, dying, and uh, this is a problem not just in our community but nationwide. And when we think about the conviction of Derek Chauvin, and the steps that uh, our state and our country need to take, even after this one incident, um, this one case that saw this resolution, there's more work to be done. You're working again on a bill to um, make racial equity a public health issue, and I wanted you to talk more about that.
4: Yeah, thank you uh, so much for um, asking that question. Uh, many many cities uh, and towns throughout the state of Connecticut uh, last year, and perhaps even a year before the pandemic, uh, all declared that racism is a public health health emergency or crisis. And even across the country, local and state leaders are declaring racism as a public health crisis. Um, we know that a declaration is is just the first step in the involvement to advance. Um, racial equity and justice, and that must be followed by allocation of resources and strategic action. Uh, And so here in the state of Connecticut, I've been so honored to work alongside so many community stakeholders and organizations uh, that are joining in on a fight um, to move the conversation from declaration to action. Uh, And we are... In the process, and I'm so very honored, we're in the process of um, establishing the Commission on Racial Equity and Public Health within uh, the legislature. Um, The goal is to identify two people um, an executive director and another position. Uh, And, you know, again, given how this important work is and the scope of the intended commission. Uh, we know that the money that would uh, be allocated to this commission is, 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 is a bargain, uh, not to mention there is um, influxes of federal dollars coming into the state, many of which um, I believe are earmarked for health care. And with the race and equity top of mind, um, I shared this on the appropriations um, call the other day, I can't think of a better use for many of the funds that are coming down.
0: Uh, but again,
4: this commission um, would work alongside legislative leaders, the executive branch, that's the governor and his commissioners, uh, and other community stakeholders to really uh, weigh in on the the hiring of Black, Brown, Indigenous people within government. Um, the way that many of our programs and Uh, some of the framework by which we are to support many communities throughout the state. Uh, For example, housing, which we just finished talking about. We believe that the right to housing uh, is a basic human um, need and every person should have that right. The same uh, may apply to our children in the Department of Children and Families. Uh, And I could talk on and on on the importance of racial equity and public health within our state. Uh, But this is the first step in the process. uh, And I'm very, very excited that the legislature on both sides of the aisle are really taking this uh, very seriously.
0: Well, I look forward to hearing more about that commission's work in the future. I wanna thank State Representative Brandon McGee for joining us today. We really appreciate your time, Representative.
4: Thank you, thank you. And I really enjoy the campaign. I will be making my donation toward the station. (laughs) So thank you so much and keep up the great work.
0: Well, thank you. And we also want to thank uh, again, Brother Kelvin Lovejoy for sticking around uh, and hearing this conversation. We hope it's not the last uh, as we talk about uh, not only how communities can help um, those that are affected by trauma, but just figuring out a way to just help youth uh, raise their voices. And again, there is information on our Twitter about this virtual youth summit that Hartford Communities That Care is hosting this weekend. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Tess Terrible. Representative McGee mentioned our Connecticut Public Radio fun drive. It's ending today, but if you have yet to support Where We Live and all the great programming, here's the number to call. Here are two of my colleagues to tell you more.
3: Hello, it is Kat Pastor and Tim Rasmussen again, not interrupting Where We Live, because you just listened to the complete you just listened to the end of Where We Live. Um so we are jumping in again to ask you for your pledge of support for Connecticut public. Uh, You can call the number 1-800-584-2788 or go to wmpr.org slash donate to check out all of the great thank you gifts that we have for our donors in exchange for their support.
2: You know, Kat, the first place I ever donated money to an NPR station was WNPR in 1989. And I am looking for the mug that I got. Those pledge gifts are also very nice. But the reality is, without the support of our sustaining members, we cannot continue this work. And it's critical that, especially in a pandemic, because our entire staff is working from their homes. The reporters, the producers, are going out into the public to tell the stories that are important. As we go through this, we can't do this without membership support. Please donate.
3: That is really true. We can end- If anybody's listening, uh, if anybody's been listening to Connecticut Public for the past year, um, I have worked here for a year and two months. So that's pretty much my entire tenure here. And uh, it is insane how much this place has expanded, grown, hired new people to cover new beats, to bring you more news, more content, um, more subject matter. Um, Just in this year and two months that I've been here alone the, the growth rate has been incredible, and that is why I can promise you as the listener that whenever you donate to Connecticut Public, your money is going very far. It is spent very wisely, um, and everything that we do is in service to you. Whenever we put out something new, whenever we, we put out uh, any content in general, you know, the public part of public radio is you. And we rely on your feedback, your criticism. Uh, tell us what you like, what you don't like, and we can adjust to your needs and what you want to listen to. And part of that is because you support us. So, again, one 800 2788 or WNPR.org slash donate.
2: And we continue to expand. I mean, your point about only being here during the pandemic is really amazing. We have people who have worked at the organization who we've never met. We've never seen them in person. Yep. You're one of the amazing ones, Kat, because you've been coming in the entire time. And without you and Gene Amitruda and a few others that come in every day, there's no way we would have kept these shows on the air and, and, and kept our hosts in safe environments like their living room or their side room in case of Lucy.
3: <laughs> right in Lucy's side room with the with the dogs at the door. <laughs> exactly. Yes. And that has been a fun part of the pandemic listening to everyone's pets go nuts behind them.
2: <laughs> or getting to see uh, getting to see people's kids on Zoom is one of my favorite things. I'm getting to know my getting to know the colleagues a little bit differently than if you come in the office every day. But at the same time, you know, this work costs money and and being able to keep and buy all the equipment that we had to buy mm-hmm. to keep everybody out, to, to keep everybody's home networks up to the speed, to make sure that we could get desks and chairs in everybody's houses they needed. Whatever they requested, we try to make sure that we can give them. And it's really important that you continue to donate. Please call 1-800-584-2788 or org slash donate.
3: And thank you.